0: Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is Wall Street Journal special writer Gregory Zuckerman. Gregory, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, great to be here.
0: Thanks for joining me. I'm excited to talk to you about your work, especially since I am um, have physicist leanings and I'm interested in hearing about your latest book, but we'll get to that in the second half of the show. For the listeners, Gregory Zuckerman is a special writer for the Wall Street Journal, year 23-year veteran of the paper and three-time winner of the Gerald Lebb Award, the highest honor in business journalism. At the Journal, Greg writes about big financial firms, personalities and trades, as well as 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 hedge funds, and the energy revolution and other investments and business topics. Greg is the author of a book we're going to talk about, The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simmons Launched the Quant Revolution, a New York Times and Wall Street Journal, best-selling book published in early November 2019. So, I'm always interested to hear how people get started in writing. It's always an interesting story. Tell me what your early aspirations were. Were you wanting to become a writer very early in your life?
1: Oh, no. I stumbled into this uh, career, as it were. (laughs) I um, originally was fascinated by Wall Street. I um, traded a little bit. To the extent I had any money, I kind of blew all all of it. Um, I was reading books about finance and Wall Street. I didn't know much. My parents didn't really participate in the market, but I caught the bug early on and I was having my counselors pick up barons on days off and bring them back to camp. So I was really very focused on working on Wall Street. And then um, I graduated, did well in, in school and college with the Brandeis University, which is a little art school didn't really work summers other than work in camps but figured I had a good GPA pretty good school what was your a major? Job at, uh, political science it took economics but it was more political science and my dad taught political science for many years so it's in the blood and he was a professor and, and a writer so I always um, uh, that'll do it yeah exactly so and I always had this obsession with newspapers so I love newspapers but I, and I loved finance uh, but I always thought I'd go work on Wall Street and I graduated uh, and travels for a while, and I got to Wall Street, sort of the teeth of a downturn uh, in '89, the reverberations of the '87 crash. And I didn't know anyone, had no um, summers where I worked or anything like that, so I, it was hard to get a job. And then I stumbled around. I started some businesses, uh, some worked pretty well, others didn't. Various um, a publication I started. I took kids on tours of campuses for as college tours we called it, and. Some of the businesses were okay, and then, um, but I needed a career. And then I um, saw an ad in the newspaper to be a financial journalist. And I went in and kind of took a test because I didn't have any clips. And then I'm taking the test, and I'm like, "Wait, they're going to pay me to write about Wall Street? How cool is that?" I never thought about <laughs> that. So I sort of stumbled into it, and yeah, I started this little newsletter. Went from there to the uh, New York Post for a little bit, and then I was hired by the New York, by the Wall Street Journal. How did you uh, get in 1996? How did you land
0: the job with the New York Post?
1: Um, I'd broken some stories at this little newsletter. It was an M&A publication. It was a trade publication. Not many people read it, but I think the gamble was, okay, if Zuckerman can break some stories at this little newsletter, maybe he can do something special at a bigger place. Um, so, yeah, I read about media companies uh, for the New York Post for a little while, but my goal was always to get to the journal if you're
0: a financial uh, that journalist. That was one of my this questions. Is, yeah, a career goal. Wall Street yeah, Journal, would, yeah, that's the top. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, if you're a financial journalist, it's like New York Yankees. It's sort of the, <laughs> the pinnacle. Um, so I came over here and wrote about different things. I wrote about the bond market for a while and um, did it that, wrote about hedge funds and private equity firms. I wrote the Hurt on the Street column uh, for a while. So, a whole Did that involve of different-
0: early work in investigation and meeting people and going to lunch with them and learning things, or is it more standoff observation and analysis?
1: No, no analysis and no observation. It's all uh, talking to people in the field and getting them to open up. The best stories are the hardest stories to crack. And yeah, it's over drinks. It's over lunch. It's over breakfast. It's um, cool. Just like uh, we see in the movies. I mean, it's not so (laughs) dissimilar. Yeah, the, the best stories are those that people shouldn't be sharing, frankly. So, there's got to be a reason, and there usually is why people would talk to you. But yeah, it's developing sources and making sure people are comfortable opening up to you, and that's how the best stories uh, result. So it takes a while. You have to know where the right people are, and you listen. You have to be, you have to understand the business too. But if you find uh, experts in the field, they can teach you, and that's sort of true of every beat that, that you work on.
0: For the listeners, how do you approach that? Do you cold call people, or do you hang around in right circles, or do you network? Tell me about that process of getting that lunch date.
1: Um, people I've found are generous with their time. If someone is genuinely curious and is trying to learn about an area, and they'll be, be generous with their time and, and sit down or a cup of coffee and explain things. And each time I, I do that, I make sure to come away with two or three names of who, who they respect, who they see as experts in the field. Who should should I get to know? Um, I also think it's the case that people don't want bad information out there, and sometimes they're frustrated with how things are reported and represented. So if someone is generally trying to get it right, um, practitioners generally are helpful.
0: Do you have some sort of elaborate database system and networking system, or do you just use the contacts list on your phone?
1: I'm really old school. I mean, I don't even – I have a contacts list, but that's mostly family. No, I've got a – Spreadsheet kind of a word document with everybody i've ever dealt with <sighs> of, of importance <laughs> and, and why and when their cell numbers and their home numbers and
0: how That's we've been helpful to
1: each other i mean it's it's so, pretty elaborate yeah it goes pages and pages. it's not it's a desktop uh, word document at my office i mean it's it's i use dropbox so it's at home as well uh it's accessible easily and um yeah, I, you know, because stuff breaks all the time over the weekend. Um, some the rumors evolve. I have to chase rumors. You hear somebody's gotten fired, a CEO of a company. Well, I may not know anybody at that company, but maybe I know someone who used to be there, someone who worked with this person, someone who um, has, has some connection in the industry, maybe a specialist somewhere else, a banker, a trader, an investor. A lot of what I do is I focus on um, the buy side, um, people buying and selling investment stocks, and others, um, big hedge funds, private equity firms, that kind of thing. So that's where most of my um, co- most of my contacts are. But I've got others um, in the world of finance, and I did this book on energy, so in the, in the world of energy as well. And yeah, it's just um, creating a mosaic, creating uh, a group of, of sources, people who will open up to you and share information. And you, I want to be the first call. Somebody gets fired. Somebody loses um, money in a shocking way. Something... Um, um, surprising happens somewhere related to the world of finance. I want to be the person that they call, they trust, um, and, and or some some risk. Something is happening that people aren't aware of. So the, the the hope is that people call me, and often they do. Do
0: you have sort of a running subspace network like Twitter or messages, where you're in contact and you're just you know just talking to people and looking for leads and. Communicating like that, or do you wait for the call?
1: I mean, I'm open. I'm I'm very um, focused on things. I'm social network. I'm pretty active, especially Twitter. But one has to assume that that's not private. Even right. emails, one worries about. So the stuff that's really uh, needs to be private, I'll I'll operate on Signal. Sometimes WhatsApp, but usually on, on Signal. And uh, the yeah, I've always got stories that I'm working. On. I've always got people that are that I'm hoping will open up to me. Um, and yeah, the more sensitive the story, the better the story. So it's always a challenge, especially with, with this book I wrote. It's always a challenge getting people to open up. Sometimes they sign non-disclosure uh, agreements and they're not really supposed to open up. So that's my job to, to to make the argument. And I always think there is some good argument why they should be chatting with me.
0: As a writer with the Mac Observer, I'm always curious about how you guys do your publishing do you have uh, like windows desktops that um are provided by the Wall Street Journal and do you publish your own articles by entering it into a publishing system or do you just write the text in some sort of word processor and hand it off to an editor
1: So I personally I mean most people at the office have Macs at home my 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 family has Macs my um my kids my my wife um I will use them sometimes, but generally speaking, yeah, it's a word, old fashioned, more word processor, just because that was the system originally when I first got here uh, at the journal. And yeah, it's not so sophisticated. <laughs> I will hand it off, and they're the mon- ones with the more, the editors and, and people above me. There are layers of editors here, and they'll have more sophisticated systems, and um, p- other people get involved. We'll sometimes work on a, a, a document together. Um, a Google Doc, and other times not as much. Sometimes it's as simple as just emailing the story to an editor. It depends what kind of project it is, what kind of story, what kind of deadline uh, um, as
0: well. I wrote for a publication once that insisted on having an editor over me who changed my text, deleted text, modified the wording. It really annoyed me. Are you subject to that, or do you I have control?
1: I mean, yeah, they'll change my wording for sure. Uh, that's... And, 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 Frankly, I appreciate that. We um, Even veteran reporters, I've been here 23 years, you need good editors and you need people to to double-check you and and second-guess you. Um, As long as you respect them and they have good ideas, Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to any kind of writing, I'm open to other people's perspectives. Because frankly, I've got my own, but a reader might see something that I don't even pick up on, some bias, some angle, something that needs to be checked that I, it may escape me. So I as long as we're working as a team and we're on the same page and we have the same goal, I, I welcome the, uh, the help uh, and, and the critique, uh, constructive criticism of others, including editors.
0: So after 23 years, what kind of latitude do you have in following stories? Do you have individual control over what you decide to do and what stories you want to follow? Or do you get assignment leads?
1: It's a combination. I'd say about a third of the stories are those that somebody an editor or somebody suggests a third of the stories are those that i come up with um on the way to work thinking about it hey what should i be writing about and a third of the time it's somebody giving me a tip where hey greg did you know these people are sitting on losses they haven't been revealed yet greg do you know that this firm's about to fire a group of people something like that or more more positive stories as well i write so um yeah about a third of the time it's somebody in the field giving me a tip
0: okay well cool well Greg, we've come to the first half of the show and uh, we have to take a short break when we come back i want to talk to you about some of your recent work and your books folks we'll be back in 60 seconds stay with us i'm chatting with wall street journal special writer gregory zuckerman stay with us
2: hello there all you fabulous background mode listeners I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO, or you can just enter MacObserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMOs, daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John.
0: We're back. I'm chatting with Wall Street Journal special editor, Greg Zuckerman. So in the second half of the show, I want to ask you about some of your recent work. Um, And I'm curious about Back in 2003, you first won the Gerald Lebb Award for a breaking news story about the demise of the telecom provider, WorldCom. And in 2007, you were part of a team that also won the Gerald Lebb Award for breaking news coverage of the collapse of the hedge fund, Amarath Advisors. Tell me about that research and work, and what was it about your coverage that won the award?
1: Oh, so those are big turning points uh, in some ways. In different industries, the telecom meltdown was huge at the time. There was all kinds of debt involved, and I think I was uh, covering the debt markets, and there was all kinds of impact on investors, and we dug into um, some of these big names, Bernie Ebers, if you if you, you recall, and others do. There was a big fraud, and it was just overbuilding in that industry, and, and it was really, in some ways, a, uh, a premonition of what was to come. That was uh, before the, tele- te- the tech meltdown, but in some ways, that's what happened. There was too much spending, and you yeah, had the tel- tech meltdown. Um, In some ways And then you also had um, The amaranth was in in some ways uh, Hedge funds Got it a little too uh, aggressive It was uh, betting on natural gas uh, And the market was more liquid And didn't go their way So that's often what I do I'll try to um, A story will happen A story will break A hedge fund collapses Or some big move in the market And I will dig into What really happened behind the scenes That's sort of my specialty
0: so there were second and third tier people who were eager to tell you what was going on at the top, and kind of spill the beans. And that you'd be
1: surprised—even people at <laughs> the top like to talk too. Uh, usually, it's the more, frankly, it's the more senior people that talk to reporters. The junior people are always scared too. I, sometimes I'll have success with them. Sometimes I won't. But often it's the more senior people—the people that will act all shocked that a story has been reported <laughs> they're often the ones who are the one with the big, best sources
0: are they trying to write their own story to cover themselves in some ways and do you buy that or see through it
1: yeah everyone's got uh an axe to grind everyone's yeah. got a perspective to share and yeah it's my job to check everything they say um it's not we, whatever someone tells us we we check so it's not the kind of thing where we just put it right in paper and you know, I had a story that I broke a few years ago about an individual at Morgan Chase who um, turns out uh, was a rogue, something of a rogue trader or a risky trader, and I called him the London Whale, and it became a big story. And, you know, I got a tip about that, but that's just the beginning of the journey. Someone could give you a tip, oh yeah, there's somebody who's taking on too much risk or what have you, but I, I can't, we, Wall Street Journal especially, we can't write a story until there are many, many, many sources that concur and confirm all that so that's just the beginning of the, of the journey
0: do you all hedge fund managers deserve their kind of sullied reputation or is it just the notable bad guys
1: no most of them are relatively boring you know, investors they hedge that's why they're called hedge funds so they are long stuff they're short stuff they um don't go up as much as the broader market usually when markets rally um so yeah i'm not sure i think it's the to pay they get they get paid more than most people that's why people don't like them but yeah. uh, generally speaking they they're they're reasonable uh, individuals who are just trying to make money for their clients
0: good to hear well, today you read about big financial firms personalities and trading as well as hedge funds and the energy revolution and you mentioned earlier in the first half of the show you wrote a book on energy is there a story to be told about uh, Energy, uh, especially renewable energy resources and investment, the two aren't often tied together in the scientific side of it or the energy side of it. And I'm well, sensing is, that there might be some angles that would encourage people to invest in energy, in renewable energy, in ways that we don't think about. Just guessing. Well, my
1: My book is called The Frackers, and it's about the energy revolution that's taken place over the last about, 12 years in this country where we went from a nation scared about the future and where we're going to get oil and gas to one that's exporting oil and gas, which is kind of a crazy concept. And it's it's an energy revolution, but it's really a technology revolution. Everyone thinks of innovation in our country in terms of Silicon Valley, maybe a little bit New York and a few spots here and there. But the real uh, innovation and creativity is in the heartland and how we've been able to get remarkable amounts of oil and gas from this rock called shale that um, years ago people gave up on the biggest oil companies Exxon, BP, etc. they said there's no way we can figure this thing out in America. They gave up on America so it took American ingenuity to to change everything and that's going to happen in the uh, renewable space as well. In some ways the fracking revolution which created all this abundance of natural gas that's sent prices collapsing has bought us some time and I'm hoping that We can have something similar uh, in renewables. We're not there yet, but people are working hard on it.
0: It's also bought us a big carbon footprint, has it not? Uh,
1: No, because it's allowed us to shift from coal to natural gas. So that's reduced our carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, What it has done is further our addiction to fossil fuels So, because we're finding so much oil and gas in this country. (laughs) So there's potential good in that it's bought us time to uh, shift I mean um, you know we as consumers we all like to go to the uh, pump and we like to use electricity we like to use air conditioning and lights but we don't like to think about where it came from and oh we hate oil and gas companies until we need to heat our home or cool the <laughs> cool our home or turn on the lights so uh, yeah it'd be nice if we could rely on alternatives. Uh, unfortunately, the wind doesn't blow all the time and sun isn't shining all the time. So it's really an issue of battery storage and people are working harder than entrepreneurs and we need to uh, give them more incentives. So the hope is that this uh, abundance has bought us some time and, and I think it has and we're making progress but we do have to uh, double down and, and put a little more pressure on it. But the whole idea of like getting rid of fracking is just innate. Do
0: you see investors and the industry wisely looking at that buying of time and looking forward to less carbon intense sources as an investment opportunity?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you talk to like sophisticated investors, like private equity firms, KKR, those kinds of people, they want to make billions. And one way to make billions uh, is to be the one helping uh, alternatives and helping uh, the efficiency and improving things there. So people are hard at work there they they do want to make money and i'm a i'm a capitalist so uh generally speaking that's a good way to give people incentive for creativity and innovation
0: okay so before we get into your latest book i want to take a little detour here and ask you about another book that you wrote that intrigued me Uh, your bio says you wrote a book with your sons rising above inspiring women in sports books that are aimed at inspiring young readers with stories of how Stars in various sports overcame um, imposing setbacks. How did that's kind of a departure? How did that come to be, and what happened with that?
1: Yeah, so um, my sons and I decided to do a couple of books for young people. My uh, youngest son is born with a hand difference, and uh, he's an athlete. He's a star uh, in our local town, and we got to thinking: well, have other stars, um, bigger stars, professional stars, overcome challenges in their own lives? And be it physical um, differences, be it racism, be it um, sexual abuse, physical abuse. So we went out and talked to all kinds of stars about how they did it, how they dealt with early setbacks. And the idea is to develop some lessons for young people. And that's um, people have responded. We've been kind of surprised by how, how young people kind of reach out to us and read the books and and got some inspiration in some way. So that was the idea.
0: Very cool. And it's always great when you're a writer, you get that satisfaction of being inspiring and you know, having people yeah, that's, warmly that's, approach your books and that kind the hope. of way. Yeah,
1: that's the hope. You don't yeah. know how you're going to impact them. But uh, yeah, when, it's very gratifying when a young person reaches out or a parent does and say, hey, um, you know, reading about how somebody famous, like LeBron James or Dwayne Wade or R.A. Dickey or Jim Abbott overcame their challenges. Well, maybe it allowed them uh, as well to do something similar uh, in their own way, in in their own, uh, deal with their own challenges.
0: Well, you're also the author of uh, a recent book, uh, The Man Who Solved the Market How Jim Simmons Launched the Quant Revolution. I assume that means quantitative analysis.
1: Uh, yes, quantitative trading specifically. Yeah, yeah,
0: New York Times and Wall Street Journal, journal bestsellers and uh, <laughs> published in November 2019. So who is Jim Simmons and what has he accomplished?
1: So uh, Jim Simons is the greatest moneymaker in financial history, at least modern finance, over the last 100 years or two. And we, I say that because uh, not only is he worth $23 billion, but... His track record is ridiculous. It's uh, average returns of 66% a year since 1988. No one comes close. Uh, very few even up, I'm sorry, down e- months. No, down years, down months. So um, he goes down in history as not only the greatest, but and this is better than Buffett, better than George Soros, better than all kinds of investors. But he also, in some ways, is um, a pioneer. And I say that it, meaning he decided to use systems and models and the scientific method, and as opposed to intuition and judgment and gut mm-hmm. instinct. Wasn't, and he ma- how, wasn't he
0: an MIT uh, mathematician?
1: Yeah, so he's a, a PhD in, in mathematics. He he is one of the greatest geometers of the last hundred years. And even if he had never invested, he'd be worthy of a book because of uh, the breakthroughs in mathematics and science. A lot of his work has impacted other areas. Um, physics and elsewhere. And yeah, he got a PhD at Berkeley after um, graduating from MIT. He taught at Harvard. He taught at uh, MIT. He became a code breaker for the government. Um, He went up against the Russians in the Cold War and did some really interesting things. And then he started, uh, or he led uh, SUNY, um, Stony Brook's mathematics department at a really difficult time. And he turned that thing around and made them one of the, the best departments in the country at the time. And he did that by recruiting and luring and wooing um, talent all over the country and developed those skills, which when he set off to, to conquer Wall Street, he used some of those skills. And that's kind of how he did it. There's a irony or even a paradox here that um, Jim Simons is the greatest trader or moneymaker in, in financial history, and yet he, he and his colleagues don't really care much about investing, <laughs> um, uh, as opposed to you know people that grew up wanting to do this, even myself. They want, are scientists, and yet Physicists. they use...
0: Physicists make Physicists, the best programmers, I've heard.
1: There you go. Yeah, they many, many of them are. Um, they especially like to hire uh, astronomers because uh, they've got similar expertise in, or they take a look at seemingly chaotic systems. W- w- the, whole, the whole idea of Jim Simons and his colleagues is that the market has more structure than one might think, than the average investor might think. Well, that was my next um,
0: question. What is it about the market that makes it amenable to mathematical analysis? Is it... Is it the cycle of uh, the economy? Is it uh, human psychology? All of those? None of those?
1: Well, in their um, particular situation, they saw structure, they saw patterns. And there's some something about uh, a scientist being able to see patterns that others can't see. Um, not unlike, let's say, I don't know, the weather where it looks seemingly chaotic and uh, and yet, it isn't. You can see some structure and some patterns in
0: this is finding the a, signal amidst the noise.
1: Exactly, exactly. And uh, we're talking about things like hidden Markov models and approaches that maybe the average investor is not familiar with, but it does seem to help to be a mathematician and scientist, at least in their regard. They, they do a specific type of investing. It's very short term; it's about two days on average is the holding period. So it's not how we conventionally think of investing, but. They developed this approach, and they hired mathematicians from all over the country and, and scientists and others, and um, they sent the mold. So today, everybody's trying to do what, they're, what they do. Everybody is trying to be a, a quantitative investor. About 31% of all trading today in the market, the biggest uh, chunk of trading in the market, is by these so-called quant funds. And we're talking about models. We're talking about mathematical models, predictive models. I mean, these people were digesting, Jim Simons and his colleagues who I write about In my book, they were digesting data and cleaning data and acquiring data um, years before people in Silicon Valley. In some ways, they were the early um, predictive scientists, uh, data scientists. They were believing in – for years before everybody else, they were believing in the approach of um, building models based on historic data and building um, early machine learning systems. I mean, their models – I was going
0: to ask you about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They were – their models
0: machine learning. Yeah. Does, yeah. Does, they were do they doing have, it
1: before. Do they they were have doing giant the
0: codes that uh, then actually integrate within this? But the, the purchase system and actually the machine buys and sells the stocks real time?
1: Yeah, it does. And they don't, often don't even know why their system has <laughs> done what they're doing. Yeah. And there are all kinds of stories in the book where, where there, were, there were periods of crisis where they had lost money uh, dramatically uh, over several days. Just bad periods. But it's bad enough to lose money, but to not know why you're losing money because your model has developed yeah. a certain uh, uh, affinity for – in one case, it was uh, potatoes, main potato, contracts to buy main potatoes, and I cornered the market inadvertently. That was early in the 80s, but sometimes they were buying too much of this, too much of that, and then they would figure it out. But uh, that's the downside of machine learning. Sometimes you don't really know. You have to figure out why the model is acting the way it is. And, but they, these are some of the, the greatest scientists – uh, in the world and that Jim Simons has, has hired them and, and put them together and gives them, and he's a great manager too. They all work on the same system, all on the same code. Everyone can see the code. Unlike a lot of technology companies, um, even junior people can see ways to improve it. And that's, that's what he wants everyone to do. Look at the code, see if there's a way to improve it and, and, and go get it and get, be rewarded for it.
0: But it's that code is proprietary to Renaissance Technologies, yes. isn't it?
1: Oh, it's this is the most secretive firm Wall Street has ever known. Oh, so yes. it, made, it, made, it made it hard for for me to write about but yeah they're very secretive on the outside inside it's very open it's very transparent to employees but um they have 30 page non-disclosures and people rarely leave partly because they make so much money <laughs> um, and, and, and when they do leave they kind of retire or do something or nonprofit or go back to academia these are academics these are mostly academic
0: scientists did you actually meet with jim simons and sort of get a tour and and, and get a broad brush of what he does without giving away any secrets
1: uh, we did. We spent over 10 hours together. He was pretty cagey about his secrets. It was my job to get as much out of him as possible. But he was very generous with his time. And, and he's a, just a fascinating character, even if he hadn't invested his early math, as I suggested, in science and code breaking. But even lately, he's um, behind basic science. one some biggest funders of basic science in the country. He's trying to cure autism, he's trying to figure out the origins of life. He's got this big... Um, effort in chile where they're trying to see if the big bang was evidence of the big bang so he's really a remarkable and, and, and fascinating individual that's uh he's he's the heart of my book
0: so uh, i have a jackpot question here to kind of close out so these institutional investors um, have grand resources uh, maybe they try to duplicate maybe don't jim simon's success but they do use the quantitative analysis approach to, to buy and sell stock So, does an individual investor still have any chance at all in this market?
1: That's a great question. Uh, They have a chance, but you don't want to go up against Jim Simons and his computers and (laughs) his scientific method. Meaning, if you're going to invest, at least do it longer term. Because that's something that Simons and his colleagues don't do. They have a shorter term holding period. So, you want to be longer term. And you also want to have some edge. And today, it's harder than ever to have an edge. But maybe, you know, you're in, in a certain area. Um, you're a doctor. You're a scientist. You know something a little bit better than others in the market or you think you do. And I would focus on that. And other than that, just kind of do passive investing and low-cost investing because, yeah, it's harder than ever uh, to, to beat the market um, if you're not um, somebody like Jim Simons and, and his colleagues.
0: What question did I not ask that I should have asked about your book?
1: I mean, um, my book is uh, as much a management book in some ways as it is an investing book in, in that Simon's, he's a, a great trader and, or developed uh, algorithms and such, but he's better even at getting big brains to work together. And they're all kind of the lessons, I think, from the book about how um, to hire and to get people on the same page and to reward even those who don't do sexy or seemingly sexy tasks within a company and simons was always really focused on that and um that's part of the genius is is managing
0: genius cool well gregory we are we are at our time right now so i want to thank you so much for being on the show with me and telling us uh, your career story and uh, about your your books so tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish
1: Um, Easy to find on Twitter or uh, Gregory.Zuckerman at WSJ.com or on LinkedIn. And I'm uh, eager to talk to people and hear uh, people's thoughts and what the next story should be.
0: Cool, cool. Thanks for joining me. It's a great story. Thank
1: you. Have a great day.
0: Listeners, I'm really glad you came by and I hope you enjoyed the show. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.